What is acupuncture? How does it work? What should I expect? And am I even crazy for considering this in the first place? If you're skeptical, unsure, or simply curious about acupuncture, then you're in the right place. I'm your co-host, Michael Max. And I'm your other guide, Stacey Whitcomb. We're here to help you get a taste and flavor of what you can expect from acupuncture and other related therapies and methods that arise from East Asian medicine. Most of us here in the West did not grow up with acupuncture. It's hard to understand something if you have not had experience with it. Having an inquisitive and skeptical mind, it's a good thing when you're seeking out health care. We're both acupuncturists. We like good ideas and something new. Common questions about acupuncture in everyday simple language. You'll hear from both Michael and myself, but also from other acupuncturists who have enough experience and perspective that they can, in three minutes, share something essential of this medicine so you can consider if you might like to use this natural method yourself. We know that you're busy, so we're looking to bring you a wide variety of perspectives make the point in three minutes. We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system. But not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Everyday Acupuncture. My guest today is David Miller. David is an acupuncturist and an MD specializing in pediatrics up in uh, Chicago, Illinois. And today we're going to be talking about treating kids. And he's also uh, a lecturer at a number of different schools and has an interest in integrated endocrinology, which is a fascinating subject. So we might dip into that as well. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you. You know, we met last spring at that uh, conference in St. Louis. Um, right, right. Um, the Academy of Medical Acupuncture Conference back That's then. right, where it was a, a bunch of MDs that do acupuncture. I had such a good time there. I was so amazed at the incredible integrative approach that, that, that you guys are taking. So I'm really excited to have you here today to talk about that stuff. Thank you. 
I'm curious to know, well, I'm always curious to know how people wandered their way into Chinese medicine. I'm, e- I'm even more curious when I hear that people have a background in both conventional medicine and Chinese medicine. How did you get to where you are? Right. It's, it's a little bit uh, happenstance or, or kismet, we might uh, say, potentially. But uh, basically, I had, I had done my training. I, I did my medical school at Brown University uh, in Rhode Island, and then I did my pediatrics training at University of Chicago here in Chicago. And uh, after residency, I practiced for about 18 months as a hospitalist at a hospital called Michael Reese, which has since been torn down. Um, not my fault. And um, that was... Um, you know, it was, a, it was a, a tough job in a lot of ways. I loved the pediatrics that I was doing. I loved working with the families and the kids. But I, I felt continually that my sort of tool bag of things I could offer families for care was not complete and was not right. Um, there was a lot of reassurance. There was a lot of referral to, you know, invasive procedures and testing. There was the use of, you know, a standard handful of pharmaceuticals. But there was not a lot of emphasis on wellness. There was no emphasis on sort of natural ways to stay well or return to health. And so I, I went that, went through a time of some transition there when I was trying to decide where I wanted to go with my career. And Pacific College just happened to open right near my, my home at that time too. And so I walked by and literally it sort of appeared one day and I decided to take some classes there. I'd always had an interest in integrative medicine and had done things like yoga with, with my mom in high school and some martial arts and Reiki during um, residency. And so I was open to integrative medicine. And when I started learning about Chinese medicine, it just really, it, it took me quite completely. I was very fascinated with it. And so I decided to pursue the full training and I did the four-year program at Pacific College. And then I opened my current practice uh, 10 years ago this month. In, Congratulations. Um, thank you very much. I, I uh, was surprised myself to realize it had been 10 years. LinkedIn had told me that. <laughs> I realized it. And um, Thank goodness for thank goodness for calendar reminders and and yeah and and have been working to really develop a practice that offers people you know sort of a lot of the best of both worlds and uh, trying to figure out when to apply which tools with people and how to serve them best using a much broader range of of devices and medical procedures and ideas than I had previously. Yeah, that's great. So, what are some of the common conditions that parents bring their kids in to see you for? I see people for a very wide range of conditions. I, I'm sure, partly because I'm also trained in the Western pediatrics, people feel comfortable bringing their kids to me for a very wide range of conditions. And so I see, first of all, all ages from newborn um, to adult, and and then all sorts of conditions from, you know, a sort of very mild and um, easier things to deal with, like constipation, sometimes sleep-related issues, uh, mild behavioral issues, to really more profound conditions that are like, uh, you know, severe developmental disorders, seizure disorders, brain damage kinds of issues, uh, and things like that. And then sort of everything in between from sort of the the common day to the really uh, complex. And I would say some of the most common things I'm asked to work with are Digestive complaints is certainly one of them, and allergies tends to be another one. Oh boy, I see a ton of that as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely a lot, a lot of allergic stuff. But sleep-related issues, appetite, behavior, attention, focus—all of those things are, are commonly seen. What are some of the ways that Chinese medicine can help with? Well, let's take uh, 
let's take attention issues. I, I see so many kids these days that are on some kind of med for their attention. What's the Chinese medicine perspective on this? What if parents don't want to put their kids on meds? Right. What would you recommend? Um, Whatever. Absolutely. Um, and it's, a, it's a, a great question and it ends up being to some degree a complex one. I think everybody would like to be able to just do a few acupuncture treatments with kids and have everything be okay. But in, in reality, what I really see is that um, a lot of times there's a very complex interplay of things that lead to the problem with attention and focus. And so for me, Chinese medicine has been really critical in being able to frame the full conversation uh, surrounding those conditions and being able to address them from from all angles. And so one of the one of the big ones is certainly diet. And just like we know in Chinese medicine, the cornerstones of treatment are really diet and lifestyle kinds of things. So starting there, looking at the kids' diets, what are they eating? Are they nutrient deficient? Are they loading up on just simple carbs? Are there all sorts of chemicals in the diet? Anything like that. Um, so looking at the things that they should be eating, looking at the things they shouldn't be eating and trying to figure out the balance of what's going on there. Um, I'd say the, the next big piece to look at is then lifestyle kinds of things. Sometimes attention and focus is a problem with actually sleep deprivation. And there's a lot of kids wandering around on a day-to-day -day basis with fairly severe sleep deprivation kinds of issues and really working on their sleep hygiene and sleep planning and rest planning so that they get adequate rest so that they can be adequately focused in other domains. Um, you know, that comes down to really a yin-yang balance to some degree. If you don't replenish your yin and restore your yin, your yang has no place to anchor and root. And so it remains, you know, scattered and floating. And so the kids uh, appear to have disorders in that way. Yeah, you know, that's, this is such a, um, I see this with adults too. We're such a go, go, go society. We think we got to do more and more and we got to do it faster. And it's mm -hmm. so counterintuitive to recognize that if you want to be busier, add some quietude. Right. That's absolutely right. I mean, I, I have had a number of families who it was really a profound shift in thinking to just suggest that they schedule in time that remains unscheduled, you know, so that maybe Saturdays from nine to one is just open time and there's no soccer or violin or homework or you know, other kinds of things that must be done in that time frame, and they really preserve it as a time to just rest and restore and have some family time and, and some downtime because people forget to have downtime um, or feel guilty about having downtime. And yet we, we, we're really need, we need that as creatures. That's really critical to our, to our health and sanity. So, so, yeah, so that's a big thing. I think um, the other thing that's really helpful for me in, in looking at attention and focus sometimes, too, is, you know, you always have to look for trauma in looking for whether or not there's, um, you know, a traumatic kind of component of what's going on. Um, and then also looking at sort of um, five-phase type and personality type. I've seen a number of situations where, you know, sometimes kids don't actually have a disorder, uh, but rather the way they present is very different from the way the parent's understanding of, of how to function in the world may be. And so it appears to the parent that the child is somewhat disordered. And to be fair, it appears to the child that the parent is somewhat disordered. In reality, it's a, it's a sort of a type of phase mismatch. So I always think of, for example, I had a father-son pair who were uh, fun to work with who I saw and the father was like classic sort of kidney type personality. He was very quiet and introverted and sedentary and he just, you know, had a lot of like introspective quiet time and, and the son was really pretty much a very young type fire personality and he was very 
active and social and on stage and moving and wanted to be engaged all the time. And from the father's perspective, the child appeared to be totally ADHD. And from the child's perspective, the father appeared to be sort of, you know, energy deficient and overly passive. And I, I think really what we had is, you know, a face type mismatch. And so helping them name that and understand that really kind of took the edge off the situation. And then we could work on other strategies for improving sort of school performance. You know, that makes so much sense. I, I see people in my practice all the time and they come in with something that they framed as a problem. And as we unpack it a bit, it's actually not something that's wrong with them. In fact, it might even be something that's completely right about them. But they've framed it in a way that it's a problem or other people in their lives have framed it as a problem instead of as, as an actual asset. Very much so. I've, I've actually seen um, three kids recently sort of in, in series as that often happens, um, you know, with a diagnosis of anxiety disorder. And, you know, the kids do have anxiety, but, but I think one of the things that's really interesting about all three of these kids is that you know, they're sort of framed as, as fearful kids and they have this internalized sense that they're more scared than other kids and that they're not brave like other kids are. And yet, interestingly, with, with all of these kids, like they sat down and they let me do acupuncture on them and they engaged in conversation with me. And, you know, we talk about other stuff they're doing and they're doing like these really incredible, like one kid gave a speech to 150 people and didn't even really flinch. But he has sort of nighttime fears. And so really looking at them, you know, these kids are actually braver than most kids. And 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 sort of there are domains where they're they're reaching stress points, but but helping them understand that, you know, they're not these, you know, you know, timid little things that are vulnerable to everything, but sort of find their own inner courage is really, really powerfully healing to them. And I think it goes really back to sort of, you know, Neijing type treatment where, you know, we clarify the Shen, we clarify the spirit and help them see their own strengths and see their, where they really shine. And, and then a whole bunch of other stuff clears up in the process of doing that. Yeah. I love that. And it makes total sense for me. For our listeners that don't have a clue as to what Shen is, could you mm-hmm. go into that a little bit and and what that's about and why working with it is important. Yeah, absolutely. So it's uh, Shen is, is loosely translated as spirit, and it gets translated and used in different ways in different contexts. So it can have a very sort of cosmic kind of sense of spirit, you know, much more like that eternal soul kind of idea, or it can mean sort of your day-to-day intelligence, your ability to have, you know, critical thinking to, to creatively evaluate situations and really sort of think with your frontal lobe to some degree too. But, but Shen is also really about uh, your sense of self and your ability to, to function in the world in the way of, uh, we almost might say, sort of shining out into the world, to bring your best inner qualities outward and manifest those so that you really, um, you know, share with the world your full set of strengths and gifts that you have to offer. And so it's, it's fine to translate Shen as spirit, but we just want to understand that, that that can mean different things even in that translation. But in, in Chinese medicine, one of the core tenets is really that that all healing really begins by clarifying the Shen. And, and what that means is that a lot of times the most powerful treatments that we can offer our patients is helping them understand their situation 
and either reframing things or educating them or helping them see how really it's it's misthinking that's leading to the problem and that they don't need medication. They don't even need, you know, acupuncture or any other thing. They need to see the world more clearly and understand it better. And and I think with kids particularly, kids come into the world with no experience of the world and so they get confused a lot of the time, they can be misled a lot of the time, and they, they accumulate large bodies of, of misinformation to some degree that they function on. And, and one of our jobs as healers and, and of uh, physicians for children is helping children understand what's true and what's not true so that they don't expend a lot of energy and attention on you know, anxiety and angst about things that are really not true. And so I would call that treatment technique to some degree clarifying the Shen letting their true spirit shine through unobstructed by misthoughts and, and misperceptions. You know, I wish that there had been acupuncturists like you around when I was a kid. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm just thinking about the amount of trouble and uh, suffering that could be saved by getting some things clarified at a younger age. Right. You know, right. recognizing your strengths and, and not being under the illusion that things you don't like about yourself are actually a problem. Right, absolutely. And and sometimes I'm always surprised at how, you know, in all of the treatment we do with kids and in all of the interventions and all of these things we do sort of to them, we oftentimes don't do enough with them and really engage them in conversation and find out what's really troubling them. I had a really delightful little boy who I've worked with the, the family for a long time who came to me when he was younger with really, you know, severe psoriasis. Uh, as it was. And, you know, he had large plaques of skin that, you know, were had silver scaly uh, appearance to them and were really quite dramatic. And one of his chief concerns that he revealed to me was he was afraid he was turning into a lizard person, right? And like as an adult, you know, you don't worry about that so much. You mm -hmm. understand things in a medical perspective. But we forget that for kids, especially when they're five, six, seven, eight years old, they're very... They don't know what's real and what's not real. And he was very stressed out about the potential that this was happening to him. And, you know, from a biomedical standpoint, we actually know that increased stress states lead to changes in the way your immune system functions and cortisol levels and things like that that, um, that perpetuate things like psoriasis. And so to some degree, part of the treatment for psoriasis was clarifying what was going on with him so he could worry about it less, let his immune system rest, and, and that it helped to improve his situation. You know, or we could smear him with topical chemicals too. That'll work too, to some degree. But but it doesn't deal with sort of the root of the issue. No, it's a, in in fact the root of the issue lingers and smolders in a situation like that. Absolutely. What are some of the kinds of issues that? Um, how do I phrase this? Maybe parents should think about taking their kids to an acupuncturist for, but they but they have no idea that an acupuncturist would be helpful for those kinds of conditions? You know, uh, one, of the, one of the areas that, that um, I think is a little maybe surprising or maybe not, you know, often gets overlooked with kids is actually pain management. I think for the adult population, acupuncture is, is to some degree being more and more seen as a go-to type of treatment for pain. And yet for pediatrics, I seldom see kids coming first uh, to an acupuncturist for pain management kinds of issues. So things like, I mean, headaches, growing pains, muscle pains, back pain, kids get all of these things. A lot of them are musculoskeletal in nature or related to stress or to, 
to other things just like they are in adults that we treat really well with acupuncture. But I, I just don't see families using acupuncture for pain control in kids the way you might expect. And, and so that would be one big area for sure. Mm-hmm. Mom or dad might come in for acupuncture, but they wouldn't think to take their kid. Absolutely. At least for pain issues, yeah. Yeah, I think digestive complaints are another one where um, acupuncture can be really helpful and, and other Chinese medical-related kind of treatment techniques can be really helpful. Um, oftentimes sleep as well, too. Sometimes like a twina protocol that the parents can apply on the kids, which is a Chinese-style massage, can be really profoundly helpful in both inducing sleep and helping kids maintain sleep throughout the night. I found herbal medicine to be really, really powerfully helpful with a lot of uh, sleep issues. You know, kidney yin deficiency with deficiency heat is a pattern that we think of for, you know, menopausal women, perimenopausal women. But that pattern is seen frequently also in adult men, but it's also very much a pediatric pattern. And I think, you know, my understanding is that traditionally formulas like Liawati Wangwan and Jirba D1 that were you know, we tend to see now many times as sort of formulas for perimenopausal women actually were formulas for pediatrics because children are seen as having a very young, energetic constitution and they're growing rapidly. They burn through their yin resources relatively quickly, especially if they're not eating properly and getting enough rest in general. And they develop yin deficiency patterns oftentimes with deficiency heat. And so uh, Chinese medical Treatments are, are oftentimes really helpful in restoring sleep, uh, normal sleep patterns, especially where kids are waking up frequently throughout the night, getting out of bed, going to the parents' room, having nightmares, sweating at night, tearing up the beds, restless sleeping, super, super common complaints. And I've seen it treated really effectively many, many times using herbal formulas. How do you get herbs into kids? I have trouble getting herbs into adults. Right. It can be, you know, um, you have to be uh, definitely creative to some sometimes. But what I've really found is that getting the herbs into kids is really oftentimes um, it's the same barrier as getting them into the adults because it's really the adult who you have to work through. So you have to get that parent to believe enough in the herbal medicine that they're willing to get their kids to take it. You know, and the way I always say it is, you know, if I have a kid who's have a severe asthma attack and they need like a course of prednisone for a short period of time, or, you know, they have a bad like lung infection and they need antibiotics, it's rare that I'll find a parent who won't get that medication into their child because they believe that it's important for their Mm, child. mm -hmm. So, you know, part of getting the herbs in is getting the parents to be committed to the treatment plan. That said, there's a number of companies producing herbal formulas for kids that are pretty mild in in flavor. Some of them are even fairly sweet and have like a glycerin-based preservative in them. So they end up tasting sort of like molasses. And there's a number of them that the kids will take very easily. A lot of times if I'm using an adult formula in kids, uh, I'll use, um, you know, a tincture as my predominant uh, treatment form of the, of the herbs and that can be mixed with honey or it can be mixed with a non-citrus juice-like product and so you can find carriers for the herbs um, that are agreeable but I'm often surprised once kids get used to it how well they do just taking herbs straight up followed by like a shot of apple juice or something like that yeah well like you mentioned they they have so much energy kids change so fast and they respond so quickly to these kinds of treatments I want to get back to the digestion thing for just a moment. And it seems to me that increasingly 
kids are are dealing with allergies. They're dealing with with different kinds of digestive issues. Is it that we're noticing this stuff more than, say, 30 years ago? Or has something changed in the environment or in our lives that seems to make kids more susceptible to digestive issues? And when I, and when I say digestive issues, I want, to, I want to include things such as uh, sensitivity to various uh, ingredients and in processed foods that may cause skin problems or behavior problems or attention problems, that kind of thing. Right. Um, and in the normalizing gut function. Mm-hmm. You, I like this term, restorative, how do you say it, restorative food? or um, mm-hmm. What would you consider a, rest, well, a, a diet that is restorative to the microbiome? What, what would that look like? Well, that's a great question. And, and, and um, so there's a lot of foods, uh, mushrooms, onions, a, a lot of the root vegetables, but in general, like sort of more unprocessed vegetable type products where, where there are small components of those foods um, like fructooligosaccharides and inulin and things like that that are actually prebiotic in nature that can really help to act as the food for the good bacteria in the gut. And then some of the chemicals in those foods also are inhibitory to, to bad bacteria and are promoting of good bacteria. So some of the, the, the way those foods break down actually end up altering our gut environment uh, profoundly. Things like fermented foods, so sauerkraut, kimchi, kefir, uh, kombucha, like those kinds of uh, sort of fermented food products are actually probiotic in nature as well as prebiotic in nature. And so eating more of those types of foods in the diet can be helpful. Growing your own vegetables in, in an organic soil can help to introduce good soil-based organisms uh, at a microscopic level into the gut as well, which can be very normative to, to gut function. And so those types of things can be restorative and then minimizing the amounts of things like your overcooked foods, but particularly like your very simple carbohydrate kind of foods or foods that are really rich in, in chemicals. Like I think sort of flaming Hot Cheetos are, are the, the emblematic food of like, this is probably not a good thing to eat that I would give to families. Like it's bright red. It's covered with a powder with all sorts of chemicals. It's got a list of ingredients a mile long. Those ingredients are not inert in our body. Bodies and, and they play a strong role in, in the environment of our intestinal tract. And so really being careful about not putting certain foods into the body is also, is also important. I hope you've enjoyed the first half of the show. Now it's time for a word from our sponsor. That would be you. Actually, you could indeed sponsor a show here for a nominal fee and have your billboard on the internet sandwiched into the show. Send along an email for details on that. Or you could support the effort here by popping over to everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and click on the link to support the show and leave a few dollars that will help to keep some inspiration in the teacup. You know, we run on only the finest oolong and poorer teas here at Everyday Acupuncture Podcast Central. No point in going all NPR pledge drive here to remind you that teas like that don't come cheaply. Just know that if you like the show, you can express your appreciation for these interviews with a small donation. As always, I love to get your feedback and ideas for future shows, so send those along too. Thanks again for listening, and now on to the second half of the show. All right, 
Yeah, so more of what's helpful, less of what's not. I think a lot of people have heard the term probiotic and are familiar with that it's helpful to take these sorts of things at certain times. The term prebiotic might be a little unusual to some of our listeners. And I've been doing a little reading lately on the on the gut biome and, and, and realizing the incredible dependence that we have on this symbiont uh, group of organisms. So the idea of of feeding the organism. Um, what's your take on things like, uh, you know, the antimicrobial uh, anti soaps and, and all this stuff? Is it is it better for kids just to get, get kind of dirty and get used to it, or should we try to keep ourselves really clean? What's your thought on this? That's, that's, and that's another big component probably of what's changed from now to 50 years ago, for example, too, is that um, I think there's a, a solid body of evidence to basically say that a certain amount of exposure to what we might call good dirt is also really um, normative to the immune system and to the GI tract and that, um, that we are overly concerned with being overly clean and that that is backfiring on us to some degree and also is really not necessary and that there's a real difference between you know being really filthy dirty in a negative way and then having some exposure to sort of good dirt getting out there and like playing in nature and getting exposed to some of that and learning to tolerate being a little bit dirty in a good way, sort of, um, is really normative to a lot of aspects of the immune system. So we definitely overdo it with the antibiotic products, and we overworry about bacteria in a way that we really don't need to. Um, it is a tough balance because there are bacteria that are really harmful, but then the use of those products oftentimes you know, we, we have to remember that just like our guts, our skin is an incredibly rich um, microsystem um, where, where many different types of bacteria uh, and other organisms, small mites and creatures like that, are living very much, much like in a forest. I mean, I think, you know, we can see this, our skin and our, our body hair is our bark and our forest like in a tree, and that's actually a rich, a rich environment. And, and we need the creatures living in those places in those ecologic niches to be happy and and thriving because in doing so they actually prevent colonization with much much more negative creatures and so by over cleaning ourselves and by over sterilizing our skin and things we essentially just open ourselves up to be petri dishes to anything that comes along and so we need to remember that as well that we're not a single organism we're an ecosystem and we need to tend to our bodies as if we were tending to an ecosystem you know this is one of the things that i've always really appreciated about chinese medicine is that it really does take that look at our entire being as being an ecosystem it's not just one thing it's not us against the world it in fact in some ways it gets a little difficult to define just what is us because the us that we think of is, is ourselves and the connections that we have with the world are so in, incredibly deep and rich and embedded. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the things that I think attracted me to Chinese medicine particularly is that, you know, the metaphors of Chinese medicine are more about things like, you know, gardening and, um, you know, living in the world and, and ecosystems 
Whereas the metaphors of Western medicine have become things like, you know, big guns of antibiotics, the war on cancer. Everything is a very destructive war metaphor type of viewpoint and strategy rather than being one that, that looks at us as needing to live in harmony with our environment and being part of our environment and working to to harmonize ourselves with our environments. Right. So this leads me to asking a bit about your thoughts on endocrinology and this integrative approach that you use. Our endocrine system is this very deep, rich, powerful sort of internal balancing system that we have. How does that all fit into the mix here? That's a great question. And so, you know, what I think is really, what was fascinating to me as I started studying the endocrine system more is that I think in my Western training, there was much more of um, sort of a, an idea that the endocrine system was in your, in your, your endocrine organs were separate from your mind and from your brain and that somehow those functioned outside of a realm that had anything to do with the way you were thinking or what you were doing on a day-to-day basis um, lifestyle-wise you know, than anything else, that they were sort of these, these independent things and you couldn't really affect them by behavior or thought and, uh, and that was just that. And that turns out to be completely wrong. And um, when you start looking at the endocrine system as really including and being um, inexorably, you know, intricately intertwined with feedback loops that include things that are our neocortex, our limbic systems, which involve ways we see the world and the way we manage our emotions, you see that there's not a single endocrine organ that's not intimately linked with our perception of the world and how we're responding to the world. So if you want to look at your adrenal glands, for example, those are probably the easiest ones. They're directly wired to your central nervous system. You know, you could be, you know, at you could be at your job and I could be working in the same office with you and we could be in the same environment and you can develop a perceived threat to your boss that I don't have. And all of a sudden your work environment becomes a huge source of stress and drives an endocrine response that involves activating your adrenals and causing, you know, epinephrine, norepinephrine, cortisol secretion and in, in dramatically changes your internal environment in a way that it doesn't change mine. And the only difference is your perception of your environment. The environments are the same, but your perception can be different and, and then your physiology is totally different. And we see that, that the endocrine system exists in loops that, that are partially gated by perception. Um, the other thing that we see is that uh, the endocrine system is dramatically linked to physical sensation and physical uh, stimuli as well too. So whether they're pleasurable sensations or chronic pain sensations or being chronically cold or chronically overheated or things like that, that all plays a role into how your, your endocrine system functions as well because your, your endocrine system is functionally trying to keep you alive and trying to keep you in balance with your environment. But in order to do that, it has to figure out what is your environment. And so controlling aspects of that can change the way the endocrine system ends up functioning. So, so that's really one of the big things is that we've seen historically the belief that the endocrine system is separate from our perception. And yet modern science 
very much says the endocrine system is intricately related with perception and interpretation. And that brings us much closer to the Chinese model of physiology. So that if we look at, you know, what gets perceived as a thyroid imbalance, for example, you know, we talk about like liver cheese stagnation transforming to liver fire flaring and this idea that potentially seven affect or emotional imbalance can can lead to that pattern. You know, Western medicine might have thought that was crazy like 30 years ago. And now that actually looks like a pretty good observation of, you know, how long-term stress really translates into deep hormonal dysregulation. So, so we're starting to see a bridging of those ideas. So you mentioned thyroid here. And I've got a number of patients, usually women. It's usually women that, that have the thyroid issues. And they'll come in and they'll be on a, a small amount of Synthroid or Armor or something because their thyroid is, is just a, a little bit under-functioning according, according to their Western doc, right? So they're on this little bit of uh, thyroid med, but they can't tell if it's helping and they don't even know if they really need it. And, you know, there's they're just not sure um, or they feel like their thyroid's off, you know, their, their hair's not quite right, their sleep's a bit off. How, for someone like that, how would you approach their situation? How would you help them with Chinese medicine? Well, I think um, you'd really start with a, an in-depth look at all of the pillars of their health. So, you know, you'd really want to look at what are their dietary habits and what are their lifestyle habits? Are they attending to their rest or are they chronically overworking, you know? And also looking at, at their, their psycho-emotional balance as well, too, um, in the sense of, like, how does their current situation fit into their emotional state? Are they depressed? Are they anxious? Are they sort of manic? Are they, is there no emotional component to this as well, too? And, and sort of looking for clues as to, um, you know, is there any sort of uh, disharmonies kind of there? So really what I would be doing is, is trying to essentially tease out what is the Chinese medical you know, pattern differentiation for them, and then using all of those sort of restorative and normative techniques, whether it be diet, lifestyle, herbal medicine, acupuncture, um, twina, you know, or qigong if they're willing to, to practice it, to, to help bring them back into normal balance. It's like, are those patients like sedentary and overweight or are they like over-exercising and underweight? You know, how does, how's, how are they sort of in balance or out of balance with their environments and what can we do to help restore that balance and then sort of see what happens, um, you know, in using all the different tools that we have at our, our um, fingertips to, to help restore balance in them. But those patients, I think, are excellent candidates for both that kind of work and then also um, you know, Chinese herbal medicine is really, I think, ideal for considering some of those uh, situations as well. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like for this kind of a person, where it's not like there's big alarms going off, but there's, it's just more like there's a little background noise. It, it's a good idea to take that, I'm going to put this in air quote symptom, and rather than silence it, dig into it and see what's underneath it. Absolutely. Right. Really see if there's uh, something going on there that, that you can identify that actually could be corrected rather than just sort of covered up. Um, you know, and then you also have to, of course, look at things like, you know, the age of the person and the family history. And is this, you know, if this is a symptom of the declining of the Jing, 
for example, too, which we might just call aging, um, you know, you want to help them try to preserve their jing and, and optimize their postnatal chi and, and do things like that that helps to, to restore health and normalcy as long as possible. Um, but there are times where, you know, you do use a mix of Eastern and Western medicine in the sense that, you know, historically, people wouldn't live to their 80s as a rule, you know, and as, as our populations get older, there's a certain amount of decline of the organism that we may need some of those integrative tools to kind of also support. So I don't always discourage people by any means from using a Western supportive strategy, um, but I do want to look and see, like, is there any other alternatives? Like, am I just seeing their situation being medicated away without whatever that needs to be corrected being, you know, without it being corrected? Or is this like you know, the jing is, the jing is declining and we need some extra tools to kind of help support things, um, as well. And then of course you always have to look at each patient's own ability to optimize what they will do for themselves. You know, if someone needs to lose 50 pounds and exercise a whole lot more, that may be what they need to do. They may or may not be willing to do that. And that's something we have to always you know, kind of compromise on as, as, as sure. physicians. Yeah. I, I know there's people I've seen, they come in for knee pain and really the only way to treat the knee pain is lose that 50 pounds. Right. You know? Right. I mean, that's how you treat the knee pain. Absolutely. I, I just want to hang with this uh, endocrino endocrinological, I can't even pronounce the dang word theme here for just a moment. I see a fair amount of people with diabetes well and, and see diabetes as being a really curious sort of metabolic, endocrinological um, kerfuffle. What are your thoughts on using these methods that you're talking about through this integrated approach to treat things like diabetes? Well, I think so, you know, we have to differentiate the different types of diabetes for sure. And so, you know, for a type 2 diabetes picture... Eastern and holistic methods of treatment should be absolutely the rule of thumb. I mean, those are diseases of lifestyle, and they involve eating the wrong foods, eating too much of the wrong foods, not exercising properly, and oftentimes not mitigating our stress. So things like metabolic syndrome, you know, and, and just in general type 2 diabetes pictures are, are generally diseases of lifestyle and ideally would be treated as such if people are willing to do that. You know, if you have a type 1 diabetes picture where, you know, especially a childhood onset sort of an autoimmune type diabetes picture, that's a much tougher situation, you know, to, to manage and correct. So in that situation, I think what you're looking to do is to, you know, optimize the function that's there and to try to do everything, you know, right to optimize that function you know, with the assumption that most likely those patients are going to need a really solid insulin regimen. But even with those type 1 diabetes patients, you see a wide range in how stable their blood sugars are and how easy it is for them to keep up to their regimen versus other people. And in some of those fluctuations in the stability or how fragile they are as diabetics, comes into, you know, play of other factors. So, you know, the type 1 diabetic who's chronically overworking, chronically stressed and isn't eating right is going to be way more out of balance than the type 1 diabetic who's doing everything right. So you still try to optimize everything for those patients. You just have a different vision of what their endpoint might be. 
Uh, although I always like to leave open the, the possibility that someone, you know, has recovery, but I never would would sort of put that out there as likely for for a specific patient, you know, depending on their their history. Right. But if they're if they're attending to these sorts of things that they do have control over, it's not right. unexpected for them to have much more stable blood sugar and to be able to control it better. Absolutely. Absolutely. You talked yeah. about mitigating stress. I have lots of people that come in, and one of the things they talk about is stress. And, and like you're saying, someone could be in a, in a situation that for them is just, is just stressful. They're, they're, they're nervous about it or they're uncomfortable. Uh, the endocrine system kicks in. You've got all these stress hormones running around. What are some of the ways, other than acupuncture, which is amazing for dealing with stress, what are some of the lifestyle things that you recommend to your patients, adults and or kids, to to help with that? Absolutely, and and so I think um, exercise is is at the top of the list there, and in that kind of exercise, meaning the right kind of exercise, which is often a mit a mix of uh, weight bearing and cardiovascular, but also you know the way people exercise, I think, is really important too, because if someone's you know, out there on the Stairmaster or whatever, having like really aggressive thoughts the entire time they're on the Stairmaster, that may not lead to a breaking of the stress. So they've got to find the, the kind of exercise that gets them out of their head and into their bodies and that they really enjoy doing and they feel good while they're doing it. And so for some people that could be running, for some people that could be biking or swimming or yoga or Tai Chi or whatever it is for that person, really helping them explore what gets them out of their head. And I think that's a piece of it. I think the other really huge piece of it is is what I would call cognitive reframing. I think people need to really consider how much reality they're giving to the stressful situation at hand because you know as we've said two people can be in the same situation and maybe both people have the same stressor but one person is profoundly disabled by it and the other person lets it roll off their back and that's a matter of perception and how do you manage your perceptions and so that's something like you know meditation breathing exercises the cognitive reframing things like that that are really important because people tend to strongly believe that their situation is absolutely real in the way that they have come to understand it and most situations are much more complex than that and and have many more perspectives that could be taken and also for those people, a lot of times the stress they're adding to the situation is doing nothing to make the situation better. So helping them define, you know, what are their goals, you know, and, and how can changing the way they engage a situation both change themselves and the situation. And I think that those are the two big areas that play a huge role in stress particularly. Yeah. I find it kind of curious that we tend to believe thoughts just because they're floating through our head. You know, so much of the thought stuff that floats through our head is such garbage and nonsense. Uh, being able to sort of sift out what's actually useful and true and what's, you know, a reaction or something someone told us once or, or, or just some unexamined idea that we have about life. You mentioned cognitive reframing. Where did, how does someone learn to do that? Well, and that's that's a good question, and and I don't have a specific answer to that. I, I think that um, that one one has to sort of explore different ways of doing that, and I think this is as for for the people who are practitioners, 
uh, it, it's a matter of looking at different modalities that um, that consider that as a treatment. So, you know, without becoming someone's therapist, which is not really our role unless we're therapists, you know, what we're looking at is, uh, I think, expanding our own viewpoints on on reality to some degree and and looking at, at how we can look at things in different ways and present those other options to our patients. And so, you know, Western techniques like hypnosis and biofeedback and things like that can sometimes help with that. But to me, this is to some degree where the depth of Chinese medicine really starts to shine. So when we start studying things like Taoism and Buddhism and Confucianism and some of the core philosophies underlying Chinese medical theory, we can oftentimes use that knowledge to give people perspective on their situation that they wouldn't have otherwise. But it demands that we cultivate ourselves as practitioners so that we can be there for our patients when our patients present to us. And if we haven't done our own homework on that, we, we won't really have the tools to offer our patients. And so, you know, I mean, the simplest on the surface, the simplest form of this might even be just like Zen Buddhist meditation where you allow a thought to drift into your head and you try not to grasp it and you let it drift out of your head and you learn that that sort of simple method of sitting in silence and in clarity, which of course is not simple at all. Well, it's it's simple. It's just not easy. Right. Exactly. And, you know, even if you're not a master at that, once you really get that concept of, like you said, the thoughts, a lot of them are just garbage. They're just random constructs that are, are some aspect of our brains have created, and they're not real. Once you really understand that, if you can bring that into the treatment setting and identify it for a patient and help them realize it, you've employed the technique. And, um, you know, and, and then it's a theme in variations. I think we were talking earlier about, like, looking at the five-phase personality type model as as a useful strategy in some cases for helping people understand themselves or their their kids and 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 for me like sometimes just helping like a, a family understand those dynamics is exactly that so you know working I was, I'm working with a mother daughter pair right now and you know in their interactions with one another and part of again what mom is sort of perceiving as clingy dependence and dysfunctional kind of behavior in her child is actually just a different personality type than she is, where this child just loves to be with her. She loves to be touching her and holding her and, and hugging and cuddling. And mom is much more of a sort of a distance kind of person and doesn't have that need for physical contact. So she's perceiving the child's behavior as pathologic. And really, the child's just being a normal kid in a lot of ways, and mom's just not used to that because <laughs> it's not how she is. Well, and being a normal kid in the way that she's a normal kid. Right, right. For her, as a normal kid. Yeah. Right. Well, that explains a bunch of marriages and uh, working relationships and friendships, too, I suspect, it doesn't does. it? <laughs> it really does. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Well, we've, we've gone a little far afield with some of this stuff. I'm, I'm really fascinated by... Uh, <laughs> where we've gone today. I want to pull it back, though, for just a moment before we wind it down, And because originally we were talking about kids and pediatrics and such. I'm curious, you know, for our listeners out here, a lot of times, you know, kids have, uh, you know, trouble with their ears and infections and this and that, and, and they think, oh, you got to put the tubes in the ears, or you got to, you know, you got to do this, or you got to do that. What would you say in your experience are a few things that, 
people will come to Chinese medicine for as a last result, I mean, a last resort, but it really should be the thing that they go to as a primary, you know, and first attempt. What are some of the things that, that you consider from your practice to, to fall into that category? Well, I think the ear infections thing is a great one. And that can be sort of easy or hard depending on the family to some degree. But, you know, to some degree, a lot of ear infections are rooted in what we'd say was spleen deficiency with oftentimes, you know, food stagnation and food buildup. And so... So we're back to digestion in some ways, aren't we? We're totally back to digestion and um, digestion and diet. And if people will alter those things and then maybe do a simple massage protocol at home... A lot of times you can decrease that phlegm buildup, help the ears to drain and avoid the ear infection. And there's some great pediatric Chinese herbal formulas like patented and on the market that are available for people to use as a first line in treating ear infections. You know, I mean, the rule of thumb in biomedicine is that 80% of ear infections will clear up with no intervention at all given time, you know. And, you know, that said, like how many more of them would clear up as well, if you added some simple gentle interventions before you started throwing antibiotics at the kids. But in biomedicine, mainstream medicine, the only thing you have to treat the ear infections is antibiotics and ear tubes. So if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And Chinese medicine brings us a whole lot of other treatment approaches to do first before doing those things and to help avoiding that as well. So that's a great one. Um, digestive complaints, constipation, things like that, that's another area. And like I said, the pain syndromes too, you know, before you load your kid up on Tylenol, Motrin, get them MRI scans and do all this stuff, you know, first look and see, do they have like muscular dysfunction? You know, they're carrying backpacks that are like twice their body weight. They're going to have headaches from like dysfunction of their upper trapezius muscles and their rhomboids, you know, that's just going to like all those muscles are going to be problematic, you know, looking at uh, things like the stressors in a kid's life before we medicate them for ADHD or depression, have we really done everything we can to help them understand their situation and also, you know, look for, for stressors, you know, that are sort of below the radar that, that really are at the root of the problem and need to be dealt with. So I think, I think there are many conditions that, you know, you just don't need to go the full way with the, the biomedicine with that you can do much better with with holistic care. Um, families have to be willing to do those things like the diet changes or the lifestyle changes which is more labor intensive but it's also more deeply restorative and corrective and avoids a lot of stuff that can be its own sort of you know hamster wheel of decline into more and more meds and more and more dependence on meds without really teaching kids you know, the opportunity to um, to take control of their own health and really helping facilitate at a very early age the idea that you're responsible for your health, not someone outside you, not the medical system, not the doctors, not the medications. You can control a lot of aspects of your health if you're willing to really, you know, own it and do the things that you need to do to stay healthy and that we know are so important for um for, for optimizing wellness. Well, that's just good advice for all of us, really. Yeah, and how wonderful to be able to learn it as a kid, you know, and have that sort of baked into you, so to speak. I suppose you have a website and all kinds of information on it. Is that true? 
I do. I have a, a website um, that's actually sort of a basic website, and I'm working on developing actually a, a web uh, platform called the Integrative Medical Network that should be up and running hopefully soon that will have more extensive lectures and information on many, many different things related to sort of holistic and integrative care. There's a few uh, web lectures that are general informative lectures um, that we can provide to the listeners right now. One is on an introduction to Chinese medicine, and another one is on um, pain management in children using uh, Chinese herbal medicine and Chinese medical approaches. Great. Yeah, I can put links to those on the website. David, it's been wonderful talking with you today. I'm really excited to get this out to folks and have them get a listen to this because, you know, parents always want the best for their kids. And uh, this this information that you've got here and these approaches are such a wonderful way to, you know, let the body and our own being heal itself. Absolutely. Yeah, great. Well, good. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been fun talking. you have enjoyed this episode of everyday acupuncture podcast if so please take a moment and visit www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com where you can click on the review on itunes button to rate and review the show doing this helps other people to find the show also you can express your appreciation by supporting the show with a donation thanks for listening and be sure to tune in again next time